I want to acknowledge Mike King, who's been named the Kiwi Bank New Zealander of 2019. He's a staunch mental health advocate and he received the award from Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern in Auckland last night. Chief Judge Cameron Bennett says King's determination to make positive change, particularly among Māori and young people, is incredibly inspiring. And Mike joins me now. Congratulations to you, Mike. Thank you, Kerry. Still all a bit surreal. I can imagine it is, because when you started off, you were a bit of a lone voice in the wilderness, weren't you? Yeah, and I didn't have a great reputation either. So people, you know, I know a lot of people were sitting there going, what's this clown up to now? Um, You know, because we're a cynical old bunch, um, you know, and and it took a a lot for me to adjust my thinking and, and, you know, instead of feeling sorry for myself, go, well, you know, these people have every right to think like that. and It's not what they think that matters anyway. It's uh, your actions that, that count. So put all that to one side and just went, you know, what other people think of me and what other people say about me is none of my business. Um, let's just go out there with this, this positive mes- message and see if we can make some change. Why did you have a bad reputation for those who don't know? Um, well, you know, I was, I was a stand-up comedian for 20 years and, um, you know, I, d- I never realised the toll that stand-up comedy took on, um, on my life. You see, with comedy, you're always looking for the negative in everything and turning it around and making it funny. But when you're in the game for a long time and a whole lot of new comedians come flooding in, you know, the, the, the scope of topics you can talk about gets smaller and smaller. And by the end, it went from um, making fun of everything to making fun of everyone. And I became really cynical, really nasty, um, you know, as I say, sarcasm is the lowest form of wit. And I lost myself. Um, you know, I really did lose myself. And along the way, I lost my audience. So, you know, I had, I had a long hill to climb. And, you know, you know that, that journey started for me in 2013 when I spoke to a small rural school in Northland who had lost five young people to suicide. And, you know, and I, I spoke to them and... I was going to go up there and tell them jokes, if I'm going to be honest, you know. I was going to go cheer the kids up with jokes. Yeah. And um, when I got to the school, I knew jokes weren't going to be appropriate. So, I, you know, I told these kids my journey um, and my battles with my inner critic that I've had my whole life and the self-esteem issues that I've had. And what happened was because I'd made myself vulnerable in front of these kids, um, they made themselves vulnerable in front of me. And when they, when they took off their masks, I was blown away by how empathetic, how um, caring, how kind they really were behind the hoodies, behind the, you know, behind the things that we're told uh, are scary, that we're told are scary. And, um, you know, they recognized the beginning of their journey in my story, my battle with alcoholism and drug addiction and my inner critic. Um, but the funny thing that happened was um, when they shared their stories with me, I recognized my journey mm. uh, as as a parent in, through their eyes, and I went, holy crap, This the, these kids aren't the problem. I'm the problem. And, you know, w- when, you, when you're forced uh, uh, to look in the mirror at your behavior, and what you're doing rather than blaming everybody else. It's, it's, it's super confronting and, um, you know, but you know, I've got a beautiful wife and, 
she helped me to breathe and continue to look. And you know, I decided that I had to, I had to make change. You know, um, I, I had, to, I had to do something differently. I, I realized through my comedy, my words, and the things that I was saying, I, I, I was confronted by a young a suicidal uh, Maori boy, and I said, you know, um, you know, he, I said, why are you suicidal? He said, first off, I'm gay. And I went patronizing dickhead. I went, oh, well, it must be really tough, eh? Wrestling with your sexuality in a staunch community, a staunch Maori community. He said, mate, I'm sweet with being gay. And I said, well, what's the issue? And he said, every time I hear the word faggot, homo, poofta, queer, um, I think this is how society sees me. And I think, what's the point? Now, that stabbed me, man, because, you know, anyone who knows me knows that not only was I saying those words out loud on radio and television, I was actively encouraging other people to say those things. And it was the first time in my life that I realized that my words and my actions were killing people and I, I had to stop. And, you know, for, for me, that was, the hardest thing about that was I made my living doing comedy. Um, and I tried to change my style of comedy, but my audience, sadly, they, they didn't want this new caring, you know, mm. guy. They want the old Mike. Um, and, um, you know, so I had a choice to make, you know, do I, do I continue to, to, to be that person to please the masses or, you know, do do I put it all away and, and try and do something different with my life? Well, the fact of the matter is I was, I had, um, my time in comedy had gone. I wasn't enjoying what I was saying. I mean, the key to good comedy is you have to believe what you were saying. Yeah. And 20 years ago, I believed what I was saying. And, and 10 years ago, I found myself not believing anything I was saying. I was going through the motions and I went, I'll bugger this. I'm just, I'm going to do something different. And, I must, um, I, look, I never did another debate after one where we, you know, were making fun of Charlotte Dawson. I thought, yeah. Yeah, she, she's got a great, well, she had a great sense of humour, used to make fun of herself, but it, I had no idea how vulnerable she was until she rang me and you're confronted by it. And I was like, you know what, I'm done here too. You know, if it's going to hurt yeah. people, I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah, and you know, and, and, and that's the thing, Kerry, you know, so, so many parents don't realise when, when their kids are talking to them or even when your mates are talking to you about a third person, go, you know, 90% of the time there is no third person. All they're doing is testing the water. Are you someone that I can talk to? And your reaction is the difference between life and death. If you turn around and go, oh, mate, that guy just needs to take a concrete pill, mate. You know, what the hell's the matter with that guy? Yeah. You know, that can be the difference uh, as to whether uh, you're someone I can comfortably talk to uh, or, which happens too many times, you're someone else I can't talk to. Why are our young ones so desperately unhappy? Okay, so um, there are two things. Uh, what I'm about to tell you is not my opinion. It's what over 200,000 kids have been telling me consistently, regardless of ethnicity and economics. There are two things that our kids want. Uh, the first one we think is the most important, which is love. Uh, our generation loves the most important thing you can give to a child. No, it's not. There are hundreds of thousands of kids living out there without an ounce of love in their life at all. And not only are they living without love, they're living with abuse, whether it's uh, physical, uh, psychological, sexual abuse. Um, they're living in poverty. And I'm not talking just the poverty of food. I'm talking a poverty of connection, a poverty of empathy, a poverty of love, and they're thriving. 
every day they're thriving. The number one thing that our kids want is they want to know that their thoughts and opinions are valued by the significant people in their life. And we think we're valuing our kids' thoughts and opinions, but we're not. Because in order to value someone's thoughts and opinions, we have to give them the one thing that we're, we're most poor of, which is time. Our kids, you know, our kids want to spend time. They want you to listen, not sit there with your fix-it hammer, wait for what you think the problem is. Well, get off the Facebook then. Well, don't talk to them then. We'll do this then. You know, they want to know, they want to come up with solutions. They want to put their ideas in front of you and talk about those things and have you value their thoughts and opinions. And it's not happening. We're living in a world now where we're working longer hours, you know, husbands and wives are working. We're ruled by compliance, Kerry. No, no matter what your job title is now, I mean, even your job's changed completely. Mm. Every call that comes in, the first thing you have to assess when the call comes in is what's the risk in this caller? You know, what's the risk to me, the, the radio station, the listener, uh, the environment, the children, risk, risk, risk. Now, the problem with risk management is this. You're always looking for the negative. You're always looking for the problem. So we've become a society that's looking at everything negatively all the time. So instead of focusing on the 99% that everyone does really well, we're focusing on the one thing that everyone does wrong. Now, when you work all day and you work tirelessly and you do a great job, you know, and no one acknowledges the good stuff, they just go, oh, mate, you got that wrong. You got that wrong. You got that wrong. And it really seeps in. So by the time you get home, you know, you feel not valued. You think, I've done most of the things I don't know. All that boss is talking about is that. And when you get home without you even realizing, there's a subtle power shift. Suddenly you walk through the door and you're the CEO of your company. Who left that there? What are you doing that for? What are you doing that for? And little things that we do and say to our kids on a day-to-day basis is having, you know, little little put-downs. Well, you are an idiot. I told you to bring me a screwdriver. You bought a teaspoon. Well, your brother is better than you at this. Things that we can justify in isolation. But think about this. Two little put-downs a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year for 15 years. That's a hell of an inner critic you're placing in your child's head because how we speak to our children becomes their inner voice. We're going to leave it there for just a moment. We'll take a break and just come back. We'll be talking to Mike about a study out that has shown a clear causal link between the use of cannabis and depression in adolescence. Bit of feedback for you, Mike, before I ask you. Um, This guy, Mike, is great. He has real down-to-earth knowledge. Mike, please write a book. I'll buy one from a grandmother. (laughs) I think you have, haven't you? Nutters Club. Yeah, Nutters Club. Yeah. So it's it's, it's out of publication now, Kerry. I think that's a kind way of saying it didn't sell. Okay. You'll be able to find it on on Trade Me. Mike is amazing. Can we please get this as a YouTube clip or as a podcast? Well, you can listen to Mike on the Nutters Club Sunday night and get his words of wisdom. And as the mother of a teen who has tried to kill themselves, no cry for help. It was a dose that shocked the doctors and experienced terrible bullying that took the most insidious of forms. Mike King is a total superhero. He makes a difference where it's needed, not superficial lip service to tick boxes. His efforts save lives. So there we go. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. Um, now, we talked about one of the reasons why you know so many kids are unhappy, and it's that low self-esteem, yep. it's that inner critic that tells them they're yep. crap because that's what they've heard. What yep. about the cannabis? 
Uh, so, look, you know, uh, another pointless report. Um, did you need a report to tell you that, no. that the excess cannabis use was going to... It's like saying, yes, uh, well, I've got a report here saying that if you don't get oxygen, you die. I mean, it's just pointless. We already know this. So we've got, to, we've got to step back from problems. We've got to stop. We've become a society that treats behavior. You know, bullying is a great example. You know, our current strategy for dealing with bullying is let's bully the bully. If you're a bully, let's throw, you know, put them on the front page of the paper, let's humiliate them, and let's threaten to throw them into jail. Um, what we need to be doing is asking ourselves what drives the behavior. Why do bullies bully? Bullies bully because they're being bullied. Simple, you know. Uh, you can only teach what you're being taught. Now, uh, with the drug problem, what we need to we need to stop saying that drugs are the problem. We need to stop saying the answer to our drug crisis is to prosecute all the drug dealers. It's a waste of time for every drug dealer that you arrest. There'll be another one to take their place. What we need to do is we need to ask ourselves, why are so many young people turning to drugs in the first place? What's the attraction? Now, I'm a drug addict and alcoholic, so I can, I can give you, I'll, I'll put people in, in my shoes just for a couple of minutes to help them understand why people like me turn to drugs and alcohol. Now, I've had self-esteem issues my whole life. My inner critic doesn't undermine my logical thinking. My inner critic bullies me every day, tells me I'm not good enough, tells me my jokes are not funny, and tells me everyone who's talk, talking about me. When I get drunk or when I got stoned, the first thing that happened was um, it gave me confidence. You see, when I was when I was 13, right up till I was 45, Kerry, I could never give you the real me. My biggest mm. fear was rejection. So if you rejected me, I'm broken. So what I would do is I would never be the real me. I would, I would morph into the person I thought you wanted me to be so you would accept me. Now, the problem with that is, you know, you're one personality type, Barry's another one, Barry's, you know, Trevor's another one. Mm. Uh, so you become a million different people, um, but it keeps you safe. So if you reject me, you didn't reject the real me, you rejected a character. Um, but when I was drunk, I could be the real me, right? I could say what I wanted to say because I had an excuse. You know, I had this built-in thing. Well, that wasn't the real me, Kerry. I know I made a fool of myself, but you know the real me. I was drunk, so it gave me confidence. The second thing that alcohol and drugs did do for people like me is, is, is it takes away shame, hurt, and embarrassment. You can do the embarrassing thing, but have a built-in excuse. And the third and most important thing that drugs and alcohol do to me and lots and lots of young people out there is it shuts the inner critic up. It gives us a break from ourselves. So normal people have a, have a normal inner critic that undermines their logical thinking. My inner critic is like a crying newborn baby with colic screaming 24-7 hateful messages right inside my head. And getting drunk is like leaving the baby in the bedroom, going into the lounge, turning on the stereo, and just escaping myself for a little while. I can still hear the baby crying, but it's only faintly in the background. Faintly in the background, and I can live with that. The only problem with that strategy is a buzz lasts five or six hours. Now I've got to go back into the room, the baby's screaming louder, and I've got a headache. Yeah. And the only way to get on top of that is to drink again and get stoned again and again and again. It's called the relentless pursuit of temporary happiness. So what, you know, so what we need to do is instead of going, you know, 
um, uh, we've got to buy your prohibition. You can never have that again. You can never do that again. We need to get a better understanding on why people are doing it because drugs and alcohol have never been my problem and they've never been a problem to drug addicts and alcoholics. Drugs and alcohol are the solution to our problem. And taking drugs and alcohol off us, and I'm not being flippant when I say this, threatening to take drugs and alcohol off people who see it as medicine is like threatening to take chemotherapy off a cancer patient. You are going to kill me. So you must replace it with something. So more work needs to be done proactively. Are drugs and alcohol the problem or is it a problem? We are sending our kids out into the world with no sense of self, no value at all. Because, you know, if a kid's got a great sense of place and feels like they're valued in the world, they're not going to be bullied by some moron on, mm. on social media. Mm. They are not going to turn to drugs and alcohol. Why? Because they've got a, they feel like they have a place in this world and they feel like they're valued. And so we've got to be more proactive, get into schools, encouraging young people to be more empathetic, um, um, you know, encouraging people that it's okay to ask for help. And the only way that can happen is if me and you role model that behavior for them. And you know, that... we have to change our attitude. Kids learn by what what they see, not by what we say. So the kids aren't the problem, Kerry. We're the problem. So I'm I'm asking passionately for people to look in the mirror and just ask themselves, what's one thing that I can change about my behaviour to make it okay for not just my my kids, but my friends to say, hey, Mike, I'm having a problem. Can I talk? And that is why Mike King was named the Kiwi Bank New Zealander of 2019. You can hear him on the Nutters Club Sunday night News Talk ZB.